Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This week we have the opening chapters of the brand new audiobook for Greg Bonson's Against All Opposition, Defending the Christian Worldview. Available now in the Canon app. Preface by Gary DeMar At the center of every worldview is what might be called the touchstone proposition of that worldview. A proposition that is held to be the fundamental truth about reality and serves as a criterion to determine which other propositions may or may not count as candidates for belief. William H. Halverson, A Concise Introduction to Philosophy In the 1950s, the John C. Winston Company, later to become part of Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston, published Adventures in Science Fiction, a multi-volume series of juvenile hardcover novels of 36 books. Some of the world's greatest science fiction writers got their start with the series. Arthur C. Clarke, best known for 2001 A Space Odyssey, Ben Bova, Lester Del Rey, Donald Wolheim, and Paul Anderson. The books carried an original retail price of $2. Today, depending on condition and the author, a first edition with an unclipped dust jacket can cost as much as $500. In addition to the wonderful stories, the books are worth collecting for the cover art. While the books are dated in terms of technology, the use of computers is minimal and email was non-existent, the stories reflect the moral worldview of post-World War II America. In addition, a teenager could find a great deal of worldview wisdom sprinkled throughout the 200-plus pages of these fascinating science fiction novels, since a fundamental Christian worldview was still operative. Here's an example from Paul Dallas's The Lost Planet, a story about how two teenagers avert a war between their home planets. The scene takes place just before the teenager from Earth boards a spaceship and travels to the distant planet of Poseidon. As he spoke, the generals seemed to become preoccupied with thoughts of the military situation, and he absently deployed salt and pepper shakers with knives and forks on the table setting up in front of him an imaginary military problem in the field. It is a basic truism, he continued, that wherever possible, the best defense is a good offense. Now, if we are attacked, and he brought a piece of silverware in toward the plate that was obviously representing planet Earth. Not only do we defend the point under immediate attack, but, and here several pieces were quickly moved from the plate Earth to the butter dish from which the attack had originated. We immediately counterattack, at the source of the aggression. After all, if you cut off the head, you have no need to fear the arms. Dallas has the general making a crucial point about fighting and winning against an enemy combatant that applies to ideological and theological debates. Defending the Christian worldview against unbelieving thought takes an understanding that every worldview has a centralized guiding principle that serves as its foundational operational assumption about the nature of reality. By going after the head, as Jael did to Sisera, Judges 4-5, through as an unnamed woman did to Abimelech, Judges chapter 9, verses 52-55, through as David did to Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17, as Jesus did to Satan at the cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull, John chapter 19, verse 17, and what Jesus did for us in crushing Satan under our feet, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, see also Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The structure of opposing worldviews crumbles because the foundation cannot withstand examination. Christians tend to attack symptoms 
the rotten fruit of unbelieving thought, rather than expose the root that gives life to the tree. The Bible tells us the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, with the result that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 3 verse 10, chapter 7 verse 19, Luke chapter 3 verse 9, chapter 13 verse 7, and John chapter 15 verses 2 and 6. Biblical apologetics means to offer a defense and is practiced in different ways by Christians. Some Christian apologists try to appeal to skeptics by presenting a boatload of facts. With this evidential method, the claim is made that facts are neutral and speak for themselves. Others believe that reason alone, devoid of any prior presuppositions and impossibility, is the best way to defend the faith. These are not only ineffective apologetic methods, they also do not follow the biblical model. Even scientists admit that factual neutrality and reason-alone approaches are impossible because the practice of science rests upon a number of presuppositions about the nature of reality, and we usually take that for granted. John D. Barrow Certain operating assumptions are assumed, otherwise no science or communication can take place. The issue, however, is how to account for these prior assumptions and how they fit within the context of a biblical worldview. That's what Greg L. Bonson's Against All Opposition does from start to finish. The Bible shows that apologetics and worldviews in general deal with fundamental assumptions that guide reason and give meaning to facts. For example, the first verse of the Bible states without equivocation or defense, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. The necessary operating assumption is that God exists, and without his existence, nothing makes sense. Unless we begin by establishing certain preconditions, we will never establish a valid and workable apologetic methodology, and attacks on the Christian faith will go unanswered. Apologetics does not mean saying you're sorry for being a Christian. Christians are not called on to apologize for believing in God, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the reality of miracles, and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that saves sinners from final judgment. The Greek word apologia, from which we derive the English word apologetics, denotes a speech made in defense, a reply, especially in the legal context of a courtroom, made to an accusation. The word originated in the judicial operations of ancient Athens, but the word occurs several times in the New Testament as well. Acts chapter 22 verse 1, chapter 25 verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 3, and Philippians chapter 1 verse 7. We use apologetics every day. Every time we defend our view of a subject over the opinions of others, we are practicing apologetics. It's no less true in the defense of the Christian faith against all opposition. The Bible commands us to engage in apologetics. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense, apologia, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14-16 through 16. To make an argument for a position does not mean to be argumentative. That's why Peter adds, with gentleness and reverence. Never give anyone a reason to reject your position other than the position itself. That is, don't be a hindrance to what you are saying by your speech or actions. There is a character aspect to apologetics. 
You can be the smartest person in the world and beat your opponent in every way possible and still lose the larger argument. People might say, he may be right on the facts, but he's a real jerk. The way we defend the faith is as important as the method we use to defend the faith. Paul makes his defense of the Christian worldview in Athens by confronting a worldview based on Greek philosophy. He offers an apologia, a defense of the Christian worldview over against the prevailing Greek worldview. Acts chapter 17, verses 22-34. Paul knew enough about Greek philosophy to engage in a debate, even quoting some of their own poets. Chapter 17, verse 28. In addition to making his defense of Christianity before Greek philosophers, Paul did the same when confronted by his own countrymen, Acts chapter 22 and 23, and Roman officials, chapter 24 through 26. He was ready and eager to defend the faith before Caesar, chapter 25, verses 11 and 32. Paul employs the term apologia in his trial speech before Festus and Agrippa when he says, I make my defense, chapter 26, verse 2. The term is used by Paul in his letter to the Philippians as he is defending the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 16. Paul battled with heretical elements within the church. He told Timothy, Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. See also 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. He was contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, Jude 3. This means that apologetics is not only designed for those outside the Christian faith, but it includes disputes that occur within a biblical worldview. The mind is designed by God to 1. Reason, 2. Test, 3. Investigate, 4. Examine, and 5. Accumulate knowledge through the study of the Bible, creation, history, experience, and everything else, but with certain interpretive first principles called presuppositions. We are commanded to test the spirits, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, examine everything, and hold fast to that which is good, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. This was Luke's methodology, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. To argue for a position is not to argue someone into the kingdom. An argument's purpose is to expose the weakness of unbelieving thought and demonstrate the long-term consequences of being consistent with a position's operating assumptions. Christian apologists give reasons as to why they believe what they know is true. The audiences may vary, genuine seekers, skeptics, or hostile unbelievers, but the message and starting point are the same. The apologist's job, like a lawyer before a judge and jury, is to present sound arguments that testify to the truth, like the physicist who assumes the laws of physics to do physics and the logician who assumes the laws of logic to do logical analysis, the Christian assumes the existence of God, otherwise there is no way to account for the cosmos and the way it works, including its physical, logical, and moral characteristics. The apologist cannot use himself as the foundational standard, or even the supposed expert opinions of others. Furthermore, the Christian apologist must recognize that his opponent is not the final arbiter of truth. We should never entertain the thought that our philosophical foes are the judge and jury in determining whether God is just and his word is true. Our task is not to present the Christian faith as a debatable hypothesis, a study in probability, or 
just one religious option among many. We should never say, you be the judge. In a biblical defense of the Christian faith, God is not the one on trial. How can a finite, fallible, and fallen created being ever be a competent judge of eternal things? How is it possible that the creature can legitimately question the Creator? God asks Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job chapter 40 verse 1. Job responded, knowing the limitations of his own nature, the only way he could. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Chapter 40 verse 4. God asks Job a series of questions that demonstrate how limited he is in knowledge and experience. God asks, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Chapter 38, verse 4. Job was trying to figure out the world and the way it works based on his own limited frame of reference. This is an impossible task. The Christian apologist is not given the option to adopt a neutral position when defending the faith. Neutrality assumes that man and God are on an equal footing. Christians are commanded not to answer the fool according to his folly. Why? If we try to do this, we will be like him and his misguided assumptions and be classified a fool if we assume neutrality or use his operating assumptions. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 4. The Bible assumes that worldviews based on premises that are contrary to the Bible are foolishness. This is why scripture states emphatically without apology, that the professed atheist is a fool. Psalm chapter 14 verse 1 and chapter 53 verse 1. How can an insignificant creature who is smaller than an atom when compared to the vastness of the universe be so dogmatic? There's not much maneuvering room here. If we abandon the governing assumptions of the Christian worldview from the beginning and argue from a supposed neutral starting point, we place ourselves in the same category as the atheist, all in the name of defending the Christian faith. This means that the starting point in the Christian worldview is not subjective. It's not just one supposed legitimate opinion among many. Of course, the unbeliever doesn't like to hear this. It means that he is not in control. It is no wonder that Paul explains the reality of unbelieving thought in stark and uncompromising terms. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Greeks foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. An apologetic methodology that claims a Christian should be open, objective, and tolerant of all opinions when he defends the faith is like a person who hopes to stop a man from committing suicide by taking the hundred-story plunge with him, hoping to convince the lost soul on the way down. 
No one in his right mind would make such a concession to foolishness. But Christians do it all the time when they adopt the operating assumptions of unbelieving thought as if they were neutral assumptions about reality. Greg Bonson's Against All Opposition is the definitive apologetic starting point to help Christians develop a sound, biblical, apologetic methodology. Introduction by Gary DeMar In February 1973, Jesus Christ redeemed me in a darkly lit pub in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was in the final months of my senior year at Western Michigan University. My athletic career had faltered a few years before. I performed just well enough to keep my scholarship. In December of 1972, during Christmas break, I was in another pub, the Wooden Keg, just down the street from the University of Pittsburgh. I heard a familiar voice from the past. The last time I spoke with David was in junior high. There's not much that I remember from that evening other than we had pizza, caught up on life, and I found out he was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I told David that I would be in Ann Arbor sometime in February to participate in an indoor track and field meet. We made plans to meet again during the day of the meet since I was not scheduled to compete until Saturday evening. Through a stroke of divine providence, I knew one other person in Ann Arbor, but I did not have his address. After spending some time with David, we were driving back to the arena when I saw a blue Dodge Dart with a Pennsylvania license plate stopped at a red light. It was Bill. How was that possible? Ann Arbor is no small university town. At the time, I did not realize that God was about to do something great in my life. I said my goodbyes to David and made my way to Bill's car. I never saw David again. God works in mysterious ways. Bill drove me to the meet. I did my athletic thing and spent the next few hours at that Ann Arbor pub where I heard the gospel. My life changed in an instant as I headed back to the house where I was living with a drug dealer a vagrant who looked like Charles Manson, and a few other disreputable occupants. As expected, my Christian faith became an issue, but I lacked the ability to offer a coherent defense. I graduated from college a few months later, and within a year I was a student at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, where I was taking courses in Greek, Hebrew, systematic theology, church history, hermeneutics, and apologetics. It was at RTS that I met Greg L. Bonson who was an associate professor of apologetics and ethics and working on his Ph.D. While we were both new to the seminary, I was new to everything. Greg was a brilliant theologian and apologist, and I was a student who had a whole lot of learning to do. Within a few years, Greg and I became friends, but he was always the teacher and I was always the student, and that was okay with me. Over time, Greg and I worked together on some conferences and publishing projects, his book Always Ready includes articles that he wrote for American Vision's Biblical Worldview magazine. For three years, Greg spoke at American Vision's week-long life preparation conferences in the 1990s. He was the anchor speaker for each of the three years he spoke. The young people in attendance gave him a standing ovation after his information-packed messages at each of the conferences. He was in constant demand as the young people peppered him with questions about how to apply the presuppositional model to various situations and questions. Our friendship proves that God has a sense of humor in putting us together. My undergraduate degree is in physical education. In 1970, Greg graduated magna cum laude from Westmont College, receiving his B.A. in philosophy, as well as the John Bunyan Smith Award for his overall grade point average. From there, he went on to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, where he studied under Dr. Cornelius Van Til. 
When Greg graduated in May 1973, he simultaneously received two degrees, Master of Divinity and Master of Theology, as well as the William Benton Green Prize in Apologetics and a Richard Weaver Fellowship from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. He next entered the Ph.D. program at the University of Southern California, where he studied philosophy, specializing in the theory of knowledge, and received his Ph.D. in 1978 while teaching full-time at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I and many others were devastated at the news of his untimely death in December of 1995. Who would replace him? Who could replace him? No one has. It has been a privilege to publish a print edition of Greg's Messages at American Vision's first Life Preparation Conference titled Pushing the Antithesis. American Vision also published the long-lost manuscript of Greg's book Presuppositional Apologetics, Stated and Defended, 2008. Now we come to Against All Opposition. Not long ago, I started listening to the talks that Greg gave at American Vision's second Life Preparation Conference. I was struck with how fundamentally basic and impacting the material was. Many books dealing with the biblical apologetics assume too much of the reader. Most Christians don't have the time or inclination to study the topic in depth. To make biblical apologetics accessible to more Christians, especially young people, American Vision decided to transcribe and edit the lectures and publish them in a way that would benefit a growing interest in biblical apologetics from a presuppositional perspective. While rummaging through a box of papers and magazine articles, I came across a letter that Greg sent to me dated October 30th, 1985. I'm writing to a few friends of presuppositionalism in the hope that we can work together on a particular project which will publicly promote and defend this approach to apologetics. We need to take such opportunities, especially since so few seminaries train men in this outlook today, and since the traditional method is being again popularized and pushed in reformed circles. American Vision's long-term goal is to continue and enhance the legacy of the work of Dr. Greg L. Bonson to the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. We must not be satisfied to present Christianity as the most reliable position to hold among the competing options available. Rather, the Christian faith is the only reasonable outlook available to men. Greg L. Bonson, Presuppositional Apologetics, Stated and Defended. Chapter 1 Faith or Reason At the Orange County Airport on my way to Atlanta, Georgia, via Chicago, I had an interesting experience. A little old lady was in front of me in line. She came up to the counter and said, The number on my ticket says that I'm supposed to get on this plane, but I'm going to Hartford. The agent looked at the ticket and said, Yes, ma'am, you're going to Chicago, and then you're going to change planes and go to Hartford. She said, I'm supposed to go to Hartford, not to Chicago. The agent said, Yes. That's right. You're going to Chicago first, and then you're going to change planes and go to Hartford. She thought for a minute and said, Oh, okay. She went and sat down, and then I stepped up to the counter. And just about that time, she jumped up from her seat and said, But on the flight board, it says Chicago, Boston. Yes, said the agent again. You're going to go to Chicago, get off the plane, and then get on a plane for Hartford. The people going to Boston will stay on the plane that you flew on. But it says Boston. Now you know what the problem was. You know that it was simple. It was easy to take care of, but she was intimidated. She was scared that she's going to go to the wrong place. She was afraid that if she got on this plane, 
Even though she could change planes in Chicago, she was going to end up in Boston, and that wasn't where she wanted to go. Unbelievers are in some ways just the opposite of this lady. They have chosen a way of looking at the world, and a way of thinking, and a way of living, that is going to land them in Boston, as it were. They think they can get off the plane in Chicago, but they can't. I went to teach believers not to let unbelievers off the plane using their own autonomous reasoning and denial of the God of the Bible by showing them how futile their belief system is. When they've chosen a worldview, make sure they know they're going all the way to Boston, which in this case means all the way to hell. That doesn't simply mean that after they go through this life, they're going to face the judgment of God and be in terror for the rest of eternity. That is hell, but hell has already begun on earth for those who do not know the source of life, Jesus Christ. Hell has begun on earth, not just because their family lives are messed up, not just because their psychological state is messed up, not just because there are social problems they experience, but also because of what has happened to them intellectually. Unbelievers don't ordinarily admit that things are really messed up for them intellectually, but they are nevertheless. Unbelievers are on their way to Boston, the full implications of their worldview beliefs, but they think they can get off in Chicago, borrow intellectual and moral capital from the Christian worldview, so the full implications of their starting assumptions are not consistently applied. They think there's a way to get off the plane, but there isn't, except for the counter-worldview only found in the Bible. Unbelievers have chosen a way of looking at the world, including how they know what they know and how they should live their lives, which is contrary to what the Bible teaches. And because they've chosen that, they find themselves on a plane that's headed to somewhere they don't want to go, and they're looking for a place to bail out. But there isn't one. I'm going to teach you how to defend your Christian faith by taking their worldview, their faith, all the way to Boston, as it were. Facts aren't enough. The facts are not what's really at stake, although it will sometimes seem like they are. Too often, we are made to believe that if we could just marshal better historical evidence, or better scientific evidence, or better psychological evidence, or whatever the field may be, if we could just get the facts, then we could win the respect of unbelievers. But that isn't where the issue really is. Having said that, it is also true that you need to know the facts. In fact, you need to know the facts better than your opponent. That may seem intimidating, but it is possible. You remember the biblical story of Gideon in chapter 7 of the book of Judges about how Gideon sent the Midianites into flight in utter terror. He gave every one of his soldiers the mark of the leader of a band of soldiers. He gave him the light that would lead the army into battle. As the Midianites looked up and saw all these lights, they said, there must be a huge army behind them. There wasn't, but because they thought there were so many there, they took off afraid, and Gideon fell upon them. Unbelievers practice this Gideon strategy. They give the impression that they are familiar with what's going on, that they know all the options, that they've read through all the books, and that they are way ahead of the game. I don't want to be unrealistic and just turn it around and pretend that we know all the options, and we know better than they do, but I want you to remember that they're finite, and not just finite, but lazy and not just lazy, but prejudicial. When they get into a certain way of thinking, they tend to pay attention only to what follows in that line of thought. They do not pay attention to other arguments. Sometimes, in fact, they are just bluffing. I can say this because I've jumped through all the hoops. I've proven that I can memorize like others. 
I can do footnotes like others. I can do this, I can do that, just so I can play their game with them. I've been through all that. Anyone who has been through graduate school as a Christian and has come out alive knows what I'm talking about. You play the game and you learn how to do it. I've done this for a long time and I'm certain that 90% of the people who oppose Christianity do not really know Christianity. That may seem remarkable. You might think, the gospel's so simple, it's on every street corner. There are churches everywhere. They all must know what the gospel is. These people know, but they've decided it's not true. I'm also convinced they do not understand what it is. They do not know your worldview as well as you do, nor do they understand that their worldview is taking them to hell. I want you to see the antagonism of the unbeliever, and to know that the facts, or what are called facts, such as the things you can see with your eyes, are not what separates you from the unbeliever. What separates you are the underlying worldview. It's the philosophy, not the facts. Faith is not contrary to reason. Everyone does philosophy, but not everyone does it well. If I can teach you something about philosophical principles, I will have done you a favor, because you'll be able to apply this to whatever field of study you go into. Let's begin by realizing that, although we are defending the Christian faith, we are going to do it rationally. We are going to use our intellect. What we adhere to is called the faith. According to an old saying, faith is believing what you know isn't true. In other words, faith is one thing and rationality is another. The devil would love for you to believe that. Sadly, there are some who profess to follow Jesus Christ but are secret agents for the devil because they will also encourage you to think this way, that we have intellect and rationality over here and faith over there. Faith is believing what you know isn't true. And if that's your mindset, then you don't have to worry about anything you encounter, do you? If faith is believing what you know isn't true, then the more you show me that I can't believe this, the more religious I am to hold on to it. I've known people, including theologians, who talk this kind of nonsense. I've known people who live their lives this way. It's like a biology student who says he's come to believe the Bible can't be trusted. He will say, Scientifically, it's all messed up, just an ancient book of superstition. But I ask, then why do you believe the miracles about Jesus and his resurrection? I know it's impossible. I understand that I've been taught that, but that just makes it all the more religious and spiritual. I hold on to Jesus by faith. Do you see how insulting it is to the Lord of history to say, I'm holding on to you, Jesus, knowing that you aren't true? What an insult. I hope you can see by now what I'm saying. Faith is in no way believing what you know isn't true. Yet, I know that in our society, this concept of faith is very popular. There is a tendency among people when they want to believe something rather fantastic, that UFOs have come and visited us, for instance, or something that will be considered deplorable or pathetic, or even when they continue to honor some politician who's been discredited, to say, I just have faith. But is there any evidence for what they believe? No, or at least it's rather meager or in dispute. It's extremely difficult to believe that it leads to what they are claiming, to hold on to these convictions very strongly, very personally. And even if what they believe doesn't appear to be true and there seems to be very good reason for not believing it, they persist in their conviction because they think they believe it on faith. I trust you've seen this in the newspapers, on television, and in what the movies portray as religion. This is the general concept that people have about faith. Faith is believing things for which there is very little reason, or believing things for which there are many reasons not to believe them. 
Faith then comes to be seen as irrational or contrary to reason. Faith is seen as a personal commitment against all the obstacles that stand in the way, all the obstacles of being honest and reasonable and looking at the evidence. They will say, I'm holding on to this conviction because I have faith. As a Christian, as someone who knows how to have faith and someone who encourages others to have faith, you will be immediately misperceived as someone who is calling for the crucifixion of the intellect. Unbelievers think that to have faith means to let your emotions run wild and turn off your brain. They think that Christians live in two worlds. They live in this emotional world full of all these things they do on Sunday morning, but then Monday through Friday, and sometimes on Saturday, their brains kick back in. It's like brain off, brain on. Go to church, brain off. Go to school, brain on. Faith means the brain is off and the emotions are running with a high degree of personal volition and commitment. Take this definition of faith from the Dictionary of Philosophy. This article is by a man who teaches in the field of philosophy, so he should know better. Peter Angeles defines faith as belief in something despite the evidence against it, and belief in something even though there is an absence of evidence for it. Given either of these popular misunderstandings of the term, whereby the Christian call to faith is conceived of as either contrary to reason or at least without reasons, Christianity does indeed look quite irrational. Faith becomes a buzzword for putting your intellect out of gear, suspending a cautious and critical attitude toward things, and making a personal commitment without sound evidence. If someone accepts this definition of faith, then we as Christians who claim to have faith in the Bible and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be viewed as irrational people, people who've turned off their brains and are letting their emotions run, people who have a high degree of volitional commitment. In this way, faith becomes a buzzword for living in two worlds, and you will be disdained for having this concept of faith. People will think you are stupid, and if you buy into that concept of faith, you are agreeing with them. Turning our brains off is not faith. I trust that you don't want to follow that understanding of faith because you do want to be prepared to deal with intellectual challenges in life. You want to be able to deal with the opposition to Christianity, and not by saying, well, we don't worry about whether it is true or false, we just turn off our brains and enjoy feeling good about Jesus. The Bible doesn't teach that view of faith, and because it doesn't, I think it's fair to say without trying to be personally insulting, it is stupid to believe that view of faith. It would be better to say Christianity is not true but it makes me feel good, just as the belief in Santa Claus used to make me feel good. It would be better to say that about Jesus than to say, I believe in Jesus because I have faith even though I know it's not true. Christianity is going to be viewed as irrational by certain people you meet, but not all people will mean the same thing by that. I'm going to show you some distinctions here so you can understand very clearly the different kinds of irrationality with which you might be charged. Some people will claim that the idea of God becoming a man, the Incarnation, is a logical contradiction. For them, this idea of there being a God-man is incoherent. It's a violation of the alleged laws of logic. But when they charge Christianity with being irrational, what they mean is that it is contrary to the rules of logic. It is illogical. So that's one way to be irrational, violating the laws of logic. When somebody says Christianity is irrational, they might mean that you believe things like the Trinity or the Incarnation, that are illogical. Here's another way that Christians might be considered irrational. There is no observable, scientific, or historical substantiation for the magnificent claims that are made in the Bible, and yet you believe them. For instance, 
The Bible tells us that Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, and he raised the dead. When someone claims that believing these events is irrational, what they mean is that there's no evidence for them, no scientific explanation for them. They are claiming that there are empirical defects in the claims made by Christians, or in the claims found in the Bible. Rationalism and Empiricism Let me explain what I mean by this. In the ancient world, among the Greek philosophers, there were two basic approaches to doing philosophy. Thinking is believing, and seeing is believing. On the first approach, if we simplify it, some philosophers said, if you want to figure out the world, you have to stop and think about it. In other words, go to your favorite chair, sit down, and reflect. Philosophers who followed this stop-and-think technique were rationalists. They believed that they needed clear and distinct ideas that were consistent with each other. For them, what was important was the life of the mind and making sure that ideas don't conflict with each other. Other philosophers were less patient with this approach. Their approach was the go, look, and see method of figuring out the world. They would say, whatever you may imagine in your armchairs, you're speculating and using your reason. But we've got to make sense out of what we encounter in the world, what we see, and what we touch, and what we taste. We need to have the facts. This is largely what Americans think are the facts. The facts are what you can touch and what you can see. These philosophers were the seeing-is-believing type and are known as empiricists. This is what I mean by empirical, a way of knowing that's dependent upon observation and personal experience with the senses. So, some people would criticize Christianity as being irrational because it is contrary to empirical evidence. Those are two ways you might be criticized for being irrational. One, that you believe the claims made in the Bible even though there is no empirical substantiation for them. Or two, that the claims made in the Bible which you believe are in logical conflict with each other. Such critics will find what they see as specific imperfections in Christianity and go after them. They might say, how can you believe that an axe head can float? 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1-7. through How can you believe in creation, the special creation of man? How can you believe that a man, Jesus, is actually God? You may think, wow, these are pretty strong criticisms. But these are the easy ones. Because if it comes down to it, all we need to show is that our various dogmas are logically consistent with our operating assumptions. We just have to show that these things are not in conflict with the known principles of science, or historiography, or other disciplines. We will come back to this, but now I want to deal with a tougher charge of being irrational. Much more vicious is the claim made by critics who say that to be religious, or to be a Christian, is to be dedicated to believing the absurd for its absurdity. I want to make a point here, a distinction that's very important. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and some might say, that's absurd, and what he means is that it's empirically defective to believe that sort of thing, that it's unscientific. I'm not talking about that kind of criticism. I'm talking about the criticism that says, you believe something that's absurd just because it's absurd, which is the conception of faith that many people have. Many people think that religious believers glory in the fact that their faith is without rational support, that they glory in the fact that it's apparently untrue, that it has to be endorsed in the face of good sense, and over against contrary reasons. Sadly, unbelievers who think this way have often been given the help of certain Christian theologians who will say that Christianity is indifferent to logic. In fact, it gets so bad among the neo-Orthodox theologians that sometimes they're even indifferent to truth. And in one sense of the word religious, that's a very religious thing to do. In fact, it's a sense which we should recognize even among evangelical Christians. 
That is, to hold something religiously means that you are committed, that you have faith in it, that you are going to hold on to it, despite the ridicule that comes. Now, the Bible does speak about this. The Bible says that the world will call what we believe foolishness. In other words, to be really religious means to hold on to something that appears to be foolish, even though it isn't. But in the case that I'm talking about, we have people who hold on to things which they themselves say are foolish. And simply because these things seem foolish or absurd, they're being very religious in holding on to them. For example, let's say you go to college and you come to find out that your roommate is looking forward to Christmas because he or she believes Santa Claus is coming. When you talk to him or her, you say, you realize there's no Santa Claus. And they say, yes, all the evidence is against it, I agree. But I'm very devoted to the idea of Santa Claus. This idea of there being a Santa Claus has so gripped my heart that I've given my life to Santa Claus. Would you say that this person has a lot of religious devotion? There's certainly a sense in which we could call this religious. Your roommate holds on to a belief in Santa Claus, even against the facts. There are people who think that being religious means something like that, believing something that's absurd just because it is absurd. As Christians, we are often put in this category. There are people who think we elevate the value of our personal faith in direct proportion to the degree that our faith is dubious or blind or mystical, that believers should degrade the worth of their faith to any extent that their faith accords with good reason. Do Christians believe because it's absurd? Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844-1900, through who is an insane philosopher, wrote in his book, The Antichrist, Attempt at a Critique of Christianity, about his derision toward the attitude that says faith must be brought into line with the facts, by saying, belief, faith, means not wanting to know what's true. Faith means holding to the absurd because it is absurd. All criticism in this vein flows from a very fundamental mistake about the nature of Christian faith. One of the best books written in the 20th century, and still is, was written by J. Gresham Machen, 1881-1937, entitled, What is Faith? Machen was a Presbyterian theologian who fought the apologetic battle with secular scholars, liberals in the church, and unbelievers outside the church. In his book, Machen wrote, We believe that Christianity flourishes not in the darkness, but in the light. He said that the Holy Spirit would bring about an awakening in the church, and that one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit would do this would be through an awakening of the intellect. Machen did not want people to believe in the gospel because it sounded good, even though scientists and historians told them it couldn't be true. He resisted what's called the disastrous opposition that has been set up between knowledge and faith. He wrote, Faith need not be too humble or too apologetic before the bar of reason. Christian faith is a thoroughly reasonable thing. Are we irrational because we believe the absurd? No. We believe what appears to be absurd to the world. Our job is to show the world that what it believes is, in fact, the real absurdity. To go back to my metaphor, they are on the plane heading straight for Boston, thinking they can get off in Chicago. Regardless of what certain misguided spokesmen say, the Bible is not indifferent to logical blunders or factual mistakes. It was to vindicate the truth of his religious claims that Moses challenged the magicians of Pharaoh's court, Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. It was to vindicate the truth of his religious convictions that Elijah competed with and taunted the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 through 45. 
The Old Testament prophets knew that their words would be demonstrated to be true when their predictions were fulfilled in history for all to see. When Jesus came into this world, he claimed to be the truth. His resurrection was a mighty sign and wonder that provided evidence for the veracity of his claims and for the apostolic message based upon his claims. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, after the Apostle Paul has been at the center of Greek philosophy in Athens, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, he leaves Athens and writes to Corinth. It is important to read what he says in those first two chapters about the relationship of faith and reason. Despite what the Jews and Greeks might think to themselves, he wrote, the gospel is in fact the very wisdom of God, which destroys the arrogance of worldly philosophy, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Similarly, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, Paul spoke of the claims of knowledge falsely so-called. Paul was eager to reason with people about Jesus Christ, not because there isn't a place for faith, but because faith is not contrary to reason. In fact, as it turns out, faith is the very foundation for reasoning, to the point that those who claim that reason is the foundation for knowledge must have faith that it's so. Today, there's a reversal. Most people think that we must stand on the platform of reason and then maybe find a place for faith. But Paul says if you don't have faith in the God of the Bible, there's no place for reason. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Paul asks. Bring them on. We're ready for them. Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. God has continued to make foolish the wisdom of this world from the first century down to today. God will continue to do the job of making those who promote reason over against faith look like fools. And he's going to do that job through you. You may find that hard to believe. A lot of people looking at you may find that hard to believe. But God is in the business of doing amazing things. There was a day when a lot of people would not have bet on David. Here's this little scruffy shepherd kid, too short to be a king and not properly equipped with the right weapons. All he has is a slingshot going against the world's giant. What a great lesson. I hope you haven't consigned that story to Sunday school lessons. It's just a fanciful story. God does great things with weak instruments. He will continue to make the wisdom of this world crumble before those of us who have nothing more than a slingshot and a few well-chosen questions to show that the plane of unbelief is still going to Boston, where unbelievers do not want to go with their faulty assumptions about the world and how it works. Questions for Discussion 1. What really separates the believer from the unbeliever? Is it faith? Explain. 2. To have faith often means what to unbelievers? 3. When unbelievers charge that Christianity is irrational, what do they mean? 4. In what way are Christian dogmas logically consistent? 5. What are two ways Christians are sometimes criticized for being irrational? 6. Explain what J. Gresham Machen means when he states that the Christian faith is a thoroughly reasonable thing. 7. Does neo-orthodoxy teach that Jesus is God? 8. What did the Apostle Paul mean when he wrote that if you don't have faith, there's no place for reason? If you enjoyed this week's episode, listen to the full audiobook now in the Canon app.